Genesis chapter 3 is where we'll be. Again, welcome to Calvary Chapel if you have a Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is where you turn. If you don't have a Bible with you, then the guys in the back will bring one to you. Just raise your hand nice and high. Let's pray. Father, we just take this minute to rest in your presence. Our weeks have been busy. Our days have been snow-filled. Our schedules are a mess now. Um, And Lord, we're thankful for the beautiful day today, uh, for the sun shining, uh, for the opportunity to be here, gathered together with your word in our laps and in our hands and open. We pray, Lord, that you would um, be speaking to a people whose ears are open to hear what you have to say, uh, whose hearts are open uh, to um, respond appropriately to what it is we learn, and whose lives will experience the abundance that you promised, that uh, you came to give. So Lord, if there's anything that's uh, quenching your spirit this morning, anything that's between you and us, Lord, um, uh, we just pray that you'd remove those things, uh, that we would remove anything that's on our part, any hardness of heart, uh, so that we'd be free to um, enjoy the fullest relationship with you possible on the face of the earth. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it's all good. Everything has come together uh, just perfectly. Uh, The the six days of creation, uh, the heavens, the earth, the stars, the sun, the moon, the constellations. Uh, We have the fishes in the sea and the animals on the earth and the insects and the creeping things, even though some of those are creepy. God said it's all good. And everything came together, the man and the woman Although at one point, God had said, after he created Adam, he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. And so he builds Eve, uh, brings her to Adam, and the two, as it says, shall become one flesh. This great oneness, naked, unashamed, and they live happily ever after is the way it should read after that. But that's not the way it reads. Everything has come together. Chapter 3, now everything falls apart. Sin enters uh, this beautiful place of, of perfect innocence and relationship with God. Sin enters in, and it has been, the rest of the book is dedicated to dealing with what happened there and what continues to be played out in our lives on a daily basis. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, I'll read through what we did last week and encourage you again to, uh, to listen online to the, um, to the sermon so that you can know where we've been. Uh, the serpent, verse 1 says, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So a couple things to notice. We were introduced to the serpent. Uh, We talked about that last week. Uh, One of the things you can notice about the serpent 
Well, actually, let's, before we talk about the serpent, let's talk about the woman. The serpent comes to the woman, not to the man. She, he comes to Adam, uh, to Eve, excuse me, and not to Adam. Uh, I think his, uh, part of the, the, the scheme of the serpent is to divide, to divide households. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So he doesn't decide to call a family meeting. He doesn't say, hey, Eve, go get your husband so we can have a family meeting because I'm the serpent. I'm here to take you guys down. I thought we should just all be in on the same page with this. It's not what he does. He isolates Eve apart when somehow Adam is not there. And, and he isolates her and he begins to speak to her. And he begins to cause doubt about God's word. He begins to cause doubt about consequences to her actions. Um, he just flat out lies about what God said. And this, uh, this, so he can do all of those things. He can lie. And he's a good, good at lying. It's a master, masterful at it. He's good at being deceitful and being cunning and being slick. He doesn't come straight out with a full frontal attack. He's kind of slick and slithery in his attack and his approach. So he can do all of that. But ultimately, in verse 6, we see that the woman had a choice to make and the serpent could not take the fruit and put it in Eve's mouth and make her eat it. That was all Eve, right? And so we tend to blame people. We tend to blame, well, it was the devil made me do it. No, he did not. He might have tempted you to do it. He might have convinced you it was good to do. But ultimately, it was your choice. And it's, it's also true of the word of God. You know that? That I can sit here and we can read from God's word. And you can hear the truths that are in it. And they can go into your ear. And they can get into your, make the, the bones in your ear vibrate. And send a message to your brain. And you can actually listen to the words that are coming out. I can put it in your mouth. But I can't make you swallow it. And Satan can put his words in your mouth. He can make you think certain things. He can tempt you. But he can't make you do it. Your decisions, your um, actions are in your control. And it's for you to decide what to do, what not to do with the things that you hear and the things that you learn, uh, lies or not lies. So this is what the serpent could do. Um, Eve had to make the choice herself. The serpent, his ways are slick, but he can't make you do it. So we see the serpent, we see Eve. She acts independently, doesn't she? God had said, the two shall become one flesh. They're meant to work together. They're meant to be a team. They're meant to operate as a unit, unified, harmoniously, together. And now Satan, what's he want to do? He wants to peel off one part of the team and get them thinking independently. In this case, it's Eve. And he uses deception to get her thinking about that thing that she's not supposed to have, that she's supposed to avoid. Now, what is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? How does it work? How did it cause the fall? Is it a toxin? Is it a venom? What is it that they eat? What was the fruit? All these questions we don't know specifics about. But we do know that whatever might be true of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, all these things you can have, but leave that one alone because the day you eat of it, you'll die. And that's the thing we want. Now, why? I don't know. And there's sometimes in your life where you're going to go, God, why did you say this? Why, why can't I do that? I could tell you, but you wouldn't understand. So trust me. And those are the times when we really have to trust God, right? When, when it doesn't make sense to us. When we look at it, we go, well, it seems to be a good thing. Everyone else is doing it. What possibly could go wrong? So I, I, I know God's word says this, but, 
well, I just don't understand, so I don't see why it's a problem. And you take the bite, or you take the bait, take your pick. And so I want to encourage you that there's times you're not going to understand why God's Word prohibits certain things. And it might even seem, culturally speaking, it might even seem that people say, hey, this is a good thing. How could it be wrong? And I want you to be right back in the garden right here with Adam and Eve. So the woman saw it. She took. She ate it. And it doesn't say, and they died right away. Right? It doesn't say, and they killed over dead, and that was the end of the story. It would be a really short book. Right? <laughs> you know, we... we Nick, come on back up. We'll start singing again. You know, <laughs> what else do we do with it? But it's over. They, they ate, they died, end of story. But it's not the end of the story. Uh, they don't die right away. There's a spiritual death. There's a separation from God. And we'll see that play out as we go through today. But the first thing that they do is they, they, they saw that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And this is one of the first signs and symptoms of sinfulness in your life is hiding and covering. And I'm convinced after 10 years of pastoring this church and having been involved in the church eight years previous to that or so, um, that in every person there is this deep understanding and concept of shame and insecurity and insufficiency. And I think that comes from sin. We are, we are all at heart very, very insecure people. And we hide, you know. We hide our shame. We hide our nakedness. How do we do that? We deal with the outside. The problem is on the inside, right? But to, co- to cover, to try to present a front that, hey, I got my act together. I'm all here. I'm good to go. You know, we deal with the outside. We worry about labels and looks. And that's everything in the world is meant to keep you looking at the outside why? To cover the fact that you know inside things aren't all good. Things aren't right. True or not true? We know that there's something going wrong, and so there's an attempt to cover, to hide that longing, that problem, that issue of sin by dealing with the outside. Now, you can be a Christian and still be struggling with the fact that I'm, I'm trying to pretend I'm something outwardly the, the, the fir- this could be the first time Adam and Eve actually turned away from each other. Never was there a closer bond, a closer union between two people. Marriage is the closest union, the closest relationship on the face of the earth, closer than parent-child. A husband and a wife know each other more intimately than a, than a parent and child do. They share things that parents and child, children aren't supposed to share. Only in sinfulness are those things shared. And some of you know what I'm speaking of, speaking of incestuous things and whatnot. Uh, and that's not, the, the parent-child relationship is not the same. This is the most intimate marriage, is the most intimate relationship on the face of the earth. And now here we have Adam and Eve looking at each other, ashamed in each other's presence, and attempt to cover them, to hide themselves from each other by sewing together fig leaves as a covering. Now, uh, figs must have just been what was right around them, because no one chooses fig leaves, right? There's a tree... Uh, like the, I think it's like a banana plant tree, and the leaf is like two feet wide and, you know, four feet long, and that'd be a much better covering, right? But fig leaves, you know, there's some big fig leaves, but they're scratchy, and they're itchy, and they're uncomfortable. And so they've tried, but that's always how it is with the way our attempts to cover for ourselves. And so if you're a person, listen real carefully, if you're a person that tends to really be overly focused on the outward, 
then it may be because your real problem is on the inward. And Peter talks about this specifically to women, he says, because um, women tend to struggle with insecurity to a great degree. And, and he says to the women, let your adornment not be merely outward. In other words, there's no problem with doing up the outside, wearing some makeup, putting on some jewelry. That's not a problem. But if that's all you got, then there is a problem. Let not your adornment be merely outward. Let it be the, the inward person, the hidden person of the heart, the gentle and quiet spirit that comes from the Lord. That's the adornment that's beautiful. The outside will never change the inside, but the inside will absolutely change the outside. So these can be very much attempts to cover for something going on on the inside. That was what we see. There's an attempt to cover for these things. Um, So they sew fig leaves together, make themselves coverings. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So evidently the fig leaves weren't sufficient when it came to their relationship with God. Because they still, even they went to another level of hiding. And this is what sin produces. Not only does sin cause us to hide from each other. And I find that again, in church-wise, when a person starts to fall into sin, they start to get seduced into a sinful lifestyle or a sinful relationship or a sinful way of thinking, I find that they, they struggle to come and be around people. And they always feel, everybody's looking at me. Everybody knows. I can't tell you how many times when people get involved, they get stumbled, they get sucked in, and they stop coming to church because they feel like everybody knows. Let me tell you, nobody knows. We're all too busy worrying about ourselves and what we're worried about people knowing about us, right? So, we're, look, everybody comes in here selfish, yet everybody else thinks that someone's looking at them and what they're going through. And typically, look, we have a pretty tight-lipped church. And there's stuff that happens, and we keep it very closed and quiet. We deal with issues. We we wrestle against these things. But it's Satan that wants to keep you hidden. It's that that consciousness and shamefulness that you feel everybody's looking. And so I can't go to church because everybody knows. Everybody's looking at me. And it's a lie. This is the exact place you need to be when you're struggling with sin. This is where you need to be. You need to find grace. You need to find truth. You need to find love. And so Satan, and, and, and he just kind of sets the ball in motion, and then we take, it, we take it from there. So they've hidden from each other, and now they're hiding from God, as if you could. Right? Sin makes you crazy. Sin, and I say that with all sincerity, sin makes you do things that are not rational. Can somebody say amen to that? Is that true or not? I mean, sin makes people think, Crazy thoughts, like, okay, now I'm going to hide from God. Are, are we talking about the same God here? And we're going to hide behind a tree like a four-year-old playing hide-and-seek, you know? Adam, where are you, you know? I, they hide. From, they've never hidden from God before. This is all new. But now they're and. and This is what people do. You may know someone right now that's hiding from God. Sometimes you hide from God in church. Sometimes you hide from God in religion. I've got my clothes. I've got my religious clothes. I've got my religious book. I do my religious things. uh, But I don't want God. And so I'll fool everybody. My covering is that I'm religious. But then when I go home in secret, 
I'm a whole different person. Right? See, you can cover it by religion. So they, they're, and that's, religion is a way to hide from God. Did you know that? It's a way to hide from God. It can be. Because what we're looking for, what God is looking for is not religion. He's not looking for a covering and a hiding. He's looking for a relationship. He's looking for openness and honesty and truthfulness. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I imagine that normally this was a time when they would meet together. That there, there was open and fellowship. How long had it been since they were, you know, since they were created and, 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 and married to this point? I don't know. But God shows up in the garden and they hear him and they hid from his presence. And now the Lord God, verse 9, called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, here's a place where I would love to have an audio track that goes with the Bible, wouldn't you? Because there's different ways to say, where are you? I, I imagine Adam is now thinking God is the, the, the giant going, fee, fi, fo, fum, you know, where are you, Adam? I know what you did, and now I'm going to squash you like a bug. It's over now. Notice he doesn't say, Adam, where's your wife? Doesn't say that, does he? He goes to Adam. You know, the serpent went to Eve. God goes to Adam. God holds Adam responsible for his role in this thing. I don't think he comes like the, the jolly green giant or the unjolly green giant, as, as you were in this case. Um, but that may be how Adam was picturing him. And that's how some of you picture him. And I was telling the first group, we, when we built this building, you know, we triple reinforced the ceiling for all the people that say, if I go to church, the ceiling's going to cave in. God's going to get me if I go there. You got the wrong God. You don't know my God. He's still looking for you, going, where are you? Now, I love God's questions. God asks a lot of questions, and there's one thing I want in my life. I want to be a better question asker. Pastors are hardwired to talk, right? We get, we, this is what we do week after week and day after day. We talk, and this pastor wants to be better at listening, and I could talk a lot less if I was better at asking questions because I think the best counseling session is where the, where the one where you get people, uh, whether you're counseling with a neighbor or a coworker, where you help them discover truth for themselves, and you do that by asking penetrating questions. And God asked Jonah, after, jo after God, you know, used Jonah to save the Ninevites from destruction, and Jonah was angry. And God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? I mean, when I am merciful to somebody and you're angry, is that right? Good question. God, uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Oh, now I got to think. I don't want to think. Just give me the answer. I mean, this is the, this is, we're brought up in school. That I don't want to think. Just I want to regurgitate the answer. Don't make me think. The question should not be penetrating question. They should be memorization. True or false, you know. But that's not the kind of questions God asks. And that's not the kind of question God is asking this morning of you. The same question of Adam. Not just physically where is he. Because, I mean, like, you know, you, can you picture God? Like, not, you know, I made Adam. I put him in the garden. I left him here a little while. Where is he now? You know, it's like keys. You know, where where did I put my keys? I put Adam. Now, where where did I leave him? Now, is that what you picture? I mean, this is the omnipotent, 
omniscient God, does he really not know where Adam is? Adam is hiding behind a tree. And if that stumps God, we can all go home. God is not stumped. God is getting, he's penetrating Adam with a question that which, which Adam will have to answer. And the question isn't just, where are you physically, Adam? The question is, where are you spiritually? Where are you in our relationship? Because you used to meet me here, and I'm still here for the meeting. But where are you that you're hiding from me? And, and God asked me that question in a parking lot in Charlottesville. Steve, where are you? I don't even know God. Right? I mean, I, I grew up going to church, but there's this voice, and I'm you know, into something I shouldn't be into. And God says, Steve, where are you? I mean, what are you, what are you doing with your life? What's going on? And I, I've talked to other people, countless people. It's when they're putting a needle in their arm. It's when they're sucking down, you know, uh, the next bottle of whiskey or whatever it is they're drinking. It's, it's, and it's like that God comes in, he breaks in that silence with that voice. Where are you? And it just stops you in your tracks and you go, what am I doing? How did I get here? You ever stop and ask yourself that question? How did I get here? Like you find yourself doing something and it's like crazy and you, what, what am I doing? What am I thinking? And God asks that question, where are you, Adam? And it's a great Valid question, and I pray that, that God continues to ask that question to people because it makes us stop and look around and go, what really matters? What am I doing? How did I get here? And we know that the way he got there was through sin. That's how we get there. That's how we get apart from God is by choosing to sin. And the thing of it is about this passage, I love it because God is still there. He's asking, where are you? And so Adam hears his voice. Uh, and he said, I heard your voice in the garden. So not just his footsteps, but I heard, his, I heard your voice. And I was afraid. Adam had never been afraid of God before. This has never happened. This is all new. Adam was afraid because he was naked. Again, all things are naked and open before the eyes of the Lord. You can, be, you can come into a service like this in the, in the morning and you know all of your sinfulness, and you know all of the shame, and you know all that things that are deep inside that you won't tell anybody, all those secrets you hide, all the things inside, and you know them, and you think everybody else is looking at you, and you think God feels the same way about you that you feel about yourself, and you're wrong. God already knows before you open the Bible, before you ever say a word to him, before you ever step in these doors, God already knows, and he's still looking for you. I heard your voice. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he asked, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which, which I commanded you that you should not eat? And now this is a simple yes or no question, right? I mean, this is, there's two answers possible to this question. Yes or no, right? Did you eat? I commanded you not to eat this, the, of the fruit of this tree. And there's two answers. Uh, did you or did you not? But no, it's not that simple with us, is it, guys? And I'm speaking right to the men. Because what Adam did is exactly what we do, guys. This is, I'm a, uh, a recovering son of Adam in these things. So what's, <laughs> it's almost humorous because it's so real. It's exactly what we see play out. He says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? 
of the tree you were not supposed to eat of. And the man said, the woman. That woman whom... Now look, look, it gets worse. That woman whom you gave me. Eve was just an accessory. God is responsible. I mean, God, we were good in the garden. You know, I had... The lazy boy, I had the remote control, I had a dog in my lap and a horse in the stable and it was me and you, God, and everything was fine. Then you got to go ahead and make that woman. She ruined everything, God. Can you hear him there just justifying himself? And look, guys, we are blamers. Some of you think that's why you got married, so you'd have someone to blame. It's my wife's fault that our account doesn't balance. It's, our, it's my wife's fault that the kids are missing. It's your son... Until he you know, gets straight A's and he's my boy. That's my boy. He's on the football field throwing touchdown. That's my boy. He gets in trouble and scoops. Your son. Right? Am I telling the truth? It's the blame game. And there's, this is, it goes back, that's me, man. My wife will tell you, she'll be the first to tell you. I'll be, well, I'll be the first to tell you. She'll be the second to confirm it. That I, I have been in my life so guilty of being a blamer. We have that ego and it's, guys, you know, it's impossible. We cannot be wrong. Fonzie couldn't even say the word, right? I was, roo, roo, roo. you guys, some of, the, some of the kids are going, who's Fonzie? <laughs> I'm dating myself. <laughs> what is he talking about? We don't like to say that we were wrong. And we, it's an issue for us, guys, because the Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that personal responsibility. It's owning your stuff. It's being able and willing to say, yes, God, I did. I did eat what I wasn't supposed to. I was wrong. That was sin. I disobeyed. But that's not what he says. First, he blames God, and people are still blaming God. When stuff is going great, you don't need God. Don't need church. Don't need God. And as soon as things go wrong, God's to blame. How fair is that? I mean, he gets no credit for the good things in your life and all the blame for the bad things that happen. Meanwhile, when it was your own stupid decisions in the first place, God warned you about that thing. God warned you to stay away from that. You did it anyway, and then you blame God because things blew up in your face. It's just not, it's not right. So he begins to blame. He blames God, and he blames the woman. You gave her to me, God. We were doing good. You brought her in. Now, this is the same woman that a few chapters, last chapter, he was like, oh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, we're, oh, we're so one, you know. We're just, we just love each other. And that's what I, I do premarital counseling, and they just look into each other's eyes, and they're snuggled up on the couch, you know. We just love each other. Have you ever had a fight? No, we don't fight. Then you're not ready to get married yet. <laughs> we love each other. We're... Seven years go by, eight years go by, they're on the couch, they're on, they can't get farther apart on the couch. And they're pointing a finger at each other, blaming each other. Somehow Satan has turned them against each other, going, it's the woman's fault, it's the man's fault. I'm like, oh yeah, chapter 3, Genesis, open your Bible. It's right there in the playbook. Verse 13, so the Lord turns to the woman. What is this you have done? Well, she's taken her cues from her man. The woman said, the serpent, he's to blame. He deceived me, and I ate. And she actually told the truth. The serpent did deceive Eve. Adam ate willingly. The serpent deceived Eve. 
and she ate. So ultimately, they both confess that they have done wrong. Um, This next part we call the curse. This is the result or the consequences of their sin that have spread throughout all of the creation and throughout all of history to all mankind. The woman, uh, so the Lord, now he goes from the serpent to the woman. The Lord God said to, uh, excuse me, from the woman to the serpent. He says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Remember, behind the serpent is Satan. And Satan's agenda always is to exalt himself. And ever you find yourself exalting yourself at work, in the family, when it's all about you and you being greater, you being recognized or you being acknowledged, that's all the hiss of the serpent behind that. Satan said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted the glory. He wanted people to notice him. And so what does he get because of that? He gets low, all the way to the ground. God still, his word still says that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. So you see the curse is directly connected to the actions. So Satan wanted to be lifted up uh, beyond God, above God, maybe have humankind worshiping him and not God. And so God says, on your belly you will go. He's cursed above more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. So the curse from sin touches creation too. Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 8 that even the creation groans, waiting the redemption of of God's people. So uh, there's a curse, uh, generally speaking, on the earth. That's why there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But it goes beyond that. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity. Now, nobody uses that word. You can write next to that hostility. There's a war going on. I'll put hostility between you and the woman. So I asked the first group. They weren't willing to admit it. How many ladies here are afraid of snakes? Yeah. You're more honest and more righteous than the early service. I'll just have you know that. Uh, How many guys afraid of snakes? Oh, uh, some honest guys. All right, all right. A couple years ago, we had, um, uh, we, I was mowing the grass, and we came across this snake, and it had a pointy head. Man, it sure looked venomous, and I had it pinned down with a lawnmower, and, and we were all looking at it, you know, and um, we were like, we've got to kill this thing. You know, it's, it's a snake. It's a copperhead. You know, every, every snake we see, it's a copperhead, you know. I don't know what it is, but it's a copperhead. So, you know, I, I, um, I usher it into eternity with a shovel, and... Uh, then we said, well, let's look up what it was. You know, it's usually good to do that beforehand. But uh, afterwards, I found out it was a hognose snake. And poor Madeline, when she found out that it was a harmless, poisonless hognose snake, she was in tears because uh, I had killed this harmless snake. So now we look them up before we do them in. Uh, <laughs> so at least we're knowing we're doing in a harmless snake. No. But there's something about snakes, man, that people that don't even, have never even seen one except at a zoo have a fear of snakes. There's this enmity, there's this hostility between man and snake because they're just, they're, they slither on their bellies and that's kind of symbolic of the way Satan works, isn't it? He's slithery, he's sneaky, they're, they, they're noiseless, and they show up kind of unexpectedly. We walk into the chicken coop and there's a snake hanging from the, nothing is as un 
as alarming as walking into the chicken coop and seeing a snake hanging down from the rafters. It's like, ah! But that's how Satan works, man. He's sneaky. He's slithery. Satan says, or God says, you're going to look like you are. And he puts him, puts him down. Enmity between you and the woman. And now it goes beyond the snake to Satan and between your seed and her seed. Singular. So this is now speaking of uh, uh, the battle between Satan and those that follow him and Jesus and those that follow him. Seed being singular, speaking of one particular seed, this is the first prophecy in the Bible. There will be enmity or hostility between the seed or the offspring of Satan. Now, not, Satan doesn't give birth physically, so we're talking about the followers of Satan, as well as the seed, the followers of Jesus. And here's how we know. Look at the next part of that verse. He, meaning her seed, shall bruise your head, the serpent's head, or literally crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see this hostility, this battle going on. Has Satan been crushed? The answer is yes, and the answer is no. Now, the answer is yes, in that he has been defeated. Jesus on the cross, his heel was bruised. In other words, he was uh, bodily, physically harmed, but in his resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection, he put a final knife into that, that uh, serpent Satan. Crushed his head. Stepped on it. But in this day and age, we know that the whole world still lies under the sway of the wicked one. When will this finally be fulfilled? It will finally be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's when he will finally deal with Satan, the false prophet, all of that stuff, casting them into the bottomless pit and ultimately into, uh, into eternal hellfire. So partly um, in Christ, but that will be fulfilled at the second coming. There's, so there's hope here. There's victory here. There's talk of, of a seed. There's talk of generations. There's talk of offspring. Verse 16. So, now the, the, so we talked about the serpent. Now to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I will assure you that these are the last verses we'll cover today, but we will cover them thoroughly. So we'll pick up next week in verse 17, just so you know, like, oh my goodness, is he going to get through this whole thing in 10 minutes? No, we're not going to attempt to get through the whole thing, but we are going to take a few minutes and focus on uh, the results of the curse from that time because we live these out today in a lot of ways. The curse is broken in Christ. So we don't have to do these things. But these are the things that will come naturally to us. God, uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross so we don't have to act naturally. Isn't that the song that says all you have to do is act naturally? Don't act naturally. Act supernaturally. Watch what happens. So I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. So Eve... Could, it, it, as I said before, it could have ended as soon as she ate, boom, died, done. Death was the, the consequence. But she's alive still, physically speaking. And there's talk of her seed. So she is going to be giving birth to new life. That's grace, right? She is going to have the opportunity to give birth to new life. And the new life she'll give birth to will ultimately lead to who? Jesus. 
For all day, you know, Eve, at first, you know, Adam named her or called her woman, right? But then he, got, he thought, well, maybe I shouldn't run around all day going, hey, woman, hey, woman. That wouldn't be good. So he gives her the name Eve, which means life, which expresses the fact that Adam had faith in the word of God. See, he, he heard about this seed, this offspring, and he believed it was true. And so he renames his wife life because she's the mother of all living, including ultimately the Messiah as human birth coming through the woman. But to remind you of the sin that caused this, there'll be pain in childbirth. Now mankind will go on to invent epidurals and invent uh, hot tubs and things like that to uh, try to alleviate some of that pain. But boy, uh, my wife is tough. I mean, she plays ice hockey. And she is very meditative in her pain. She's a high pain threshold. But boy, when she was uh, in labor with Jacob, you know, I- I'm trying to, you know, we, we skip the classes. Anybody, there's like these classes, childbirth classes. We were like, eh, we don't need that stuff, right? But I, I watched movies and I see you're supposed to, you know, okay, honey, you know, push, push. And I knew all the stuff I was supposed to say. And, and she just looked at me. I was trying to be encouraging. And she just said to me, don't talk. <laughs> I said, I'll be in the corner. And then, she said, and then she was having a lot of back labor, right? She had really bad back labor. And so at one point, I was allowed to enter her presence. <laughs> and she said, can you rub my back for me? So I'm rubbing away about three minutes into it. I'm like, man, honey, my thumbs are really hurting. You know, can I stop now? And she looked at me. Somehow I lived through her childbirth. No epidural. She was epidural free uh, during that. But pain in childbirth. Now, Paul mentions something to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about um, it was Adam was created first and then Eve. So there's a creative order. And it was not Adam that was deceived, but it was Eve that was deceived. Adam sinned willingly. Eve was deceived. And then Paul says, but she will be saved through childbearing. And that doesn't mean that saved in the spiritual sense, but that means that although she should have, could have died at that time, God could have been, Boop, it's over. God allowed her to live and then allowed her to continue giving life to others. And that is, in a sense, the salvation of Eve is the ability. Guys can't do it. We can't give birth. We can't, a new life can't spring from us, from our body. And so, but the curse in that Child, ch- children are a gift from the Lord, um, but the, gi- the, the result of the curse is that it's going to be painful. So you will we'll remember and be reminded of the painfulness of sin. Not only that, the second part of this is your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now this is interpreted a lot of different ways. Some people look at this uh, in, a, in a sexual sense. In other words, even though childbearing and child raising is going to be painful, you're still going to have this desire for your husband, uh, sexually speaking. So you're going to be in this vicious cycle where, you know, you're going to have a sexual desire, you're going to become pregnant, you're going to give birth, that's going to be painful, and you're going to be stuck in that. And I don't think that's what it's saying here. Now, go with me, if you will, just one page over to Genesis chapter 4. Because there's only three places in the Old Testament where we see that word desire. Uh, in that way, and it means a longing for, a strong longing for, and it can be either positive or negative. 
It's used in a positive sense of the, the, the man, the beloved in Song of Solomon to his uh, wife, the Shulamite woman. It's used in a positive sense of a longing for. But look at here in chapter 4 of Genesis. It's almost an exact parallel. Look at verse 6. This is speaking of Cain. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Okay? Let me read that again. Sin is lying or crouching at the door like an animal, like a cat, like a lion. It's crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now go back to Genesis 3. It says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall, shall rule over you. So it's a, almost an exact parallel, isn't it? Do you see that? So the question is, in what way was sin crouching to, to rule over or to have a desire for Cain? In what way did sin have a desire for Cain personified? Probably to control him, probably to determine his actions. I, that's what I would say. Now you can disagree with that, but I'm, you know, God tells Cain, you can't let that sin control you. You have to dominate it. And of course, Cain fails at that. That's a story for another time. So go back. I think what, the, what is related to the curse, and I think it works out practically in our lives, is the, uh, the idea of, I am woman, hear me roar. I'm crouching at the door, and I'm roaring to exert my, we'll maybe call them maybe take charge women, right? That, that in a relationship, in a marriage, in, uh, that... The result of the curse is the woman's desire to rule over or to dominate her husband. Or for women, domination over men. And the, result, the other part of that curse is that he, in turn, then, there's a, there's a struggle, dominates her. And we see this wrestling match, the battle of the sexes, played out in homes all over the place, all the time. You say, well, my marriage is in such conflict. Yeah, I know. It's the result of the curse. Yeah, but... but it seems like our marriage is cursed. Yeah, I know. It's, it's right here in Genesis. We, we got issues to work out. We got struggles that we're having. We see it culturally, don't we? Look at countries where Christ is not known. And look at the way women are treated by men. Look at the way women have suffered abuses throughout history at the hands of men. And we see the result of the curse. That's not the way it's meant to be. Both created in the image of God. Both created equally. Now, I want to wrap this up by reminding you that God gives us the information for the way it is supposed to look. To undo the curse in your marriage. To solve the conflict that you're struggling with because of the curse. Where Eve, remember, she stepped outside of her husband, acted independently, and gave, uh, exerted her will on him. Here, take this fruit and eat it. And he ate it. And so now the curse is just the same result. Uh, if, that, if that is what you want, Eve, then that's what you can have. That's going to end up... Cursing your marriage, if that's the way you are. If you treat your husband like a four-year-old, if you're always battling it out with him for control in the family, then it's going to go poorly. So what does it look like? Because husbands, you try to then dominate your wife or try to have your way with her, and she's, it's just a battle, and so you go, I'm out of here, I'm going to work, where I can be in control, where people do actually listen to what I say. And I want to just remind you about Ephesians chapter 5. How's it supposed to look, folks? Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. You want to undo the curse of your marriage? 
You want to solve the conflict that you're experiencing? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I fail at that regularly, but I never lower the bar. Wives, you want to undo the curse? You want to see your marriage get out from under that curse? Then give your husband the honor and respect. Include him in things. Work together with him. Don't undermine him. Come alongside of him. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Be submissive to one another. Work together. Work it out. And you will undo the curse in your marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands with godly reverence and give him the respect that he deserves. And you will watch conflict fade away or at least you'll be able to solve it better. And you will see this curse not have an effect. We all, it always wants to creep back in, doesn't it, folks? Those cursed mentalities kind of creep back in on us. But that's the battle of the sexes, man. That's what makes marriage so difficult. That's why I say to the young couples we, we, that say, we want to get married. How long have you been dating? Two weeks. But we're in love. Let me see you solve some conflicts together. And if you can solve a conflict together, you'll make it. Because that's what it's about, isn't it? That love it takes to solve conflicts together, to overcome that curse. Only way to do it is through Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ that drives me to love my wife. When a man loves his wife, he loves himself. She's part of his own body. Where's Nick, if you would, where's, come on up, Nick. So, you know, I don't know where you guys are maritally speaking. I don't know where you are with the Lord. Um, I'm so glad that you're here and able to go back. This is the root of everything, isn't it? We're, we're getting the beginnings of all the problems in the world, the root of sin in life. Let's pray, and then we'll close with a final song. And I want to invite anybody who, um, who maybe the Lord was saying, where are you? Uh, if you want to pray, if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, get out from under that curse. Uh, deal with those longings that are internal, then today's the day. Amen? Today's the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I know there's a lot of thoughts bouncing around in people's heads. Agreeing, disagreeing, thinking, challenging, uh, trying to understand how these things apply and and see them worked out in their own marriages and lives. Lord, um, line upon line, precept upon precept, here here a little, there a little, little, we continue to learn from you, Lord. Um, pray for marriages that are struggling because of these attitudes that go back to Adam and Eve and not back to Jesus. But I pray our behaviors and our, and our actions would not be traced back to those two, not the first Adam, but the second Adam, Christ, the undoer of the curse the one who breaks down walls, the one who unifies what's been divided. Lord, there's marriages that are hurting. There's relationships that are broken. There are people exalting themselves and hiding from you and hiding from each other. And Lord, what a mess. Lord, we say come quickly. Rescue us. Bring a revival in our lives, Lord. A revival in the church, a revival in our community, a revival in our hearts. Direct our faces to Jesus Christ. And show us the abundant life you promised. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.